cool boy. Got a rocket in your pocket. Keep coolly cool, boy. Don't get hot, 'cause man, you've got some high times ahead. Take it slow, and daddy, oh, you can live it up and die in bed. Boy, boy, crazy boy, stay loose, boy. Breeze it, buzz it, easy does it. Turn off the juice, boy. Go, man, go, but not like a yo-yo schoolboy. Just play it cool, boy. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, December 19th, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia, Genetessa Fox, and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Jenna Tessa Fox. Jenna has written about theater for many publications, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, HowlRound. She's a member of the Legal Professional Theater Women and the Drama Desk and is a contributor to Broadway Radio. Hello, Jenna. Good morning. How's it going? Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Ten days, Michael, right? Ten days. Ten days, yeah. As of now, uh, I got an email and, and everything is, is still on. At an email for what? Below. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, what? An email for what? Just catch people up? Oh, uh, yeah, I was about to. <laughs> okay. Uh, for our, our uh, production of The Boys from Syracuse in Concert on December 29th at uh, Feinstein's 54 Below, 9.45 p.m. with a great cast. And uh, we're, you know, uh, as of now, we're, we're, we're set to go. And they, uh, they, they have put in new uh, restrictions in terms of uh, audience mask wearing and no uh, no fraternization with the artists afterwards and oh well like i'm that. not going then yeah. no fraternization <laughs> you know well, we, we can fraternize on the street <laughs> okay well you know um, i think there's laws about that michael there's a real irony for me personally about going that night and that is it will be literally 58 years to the day that i first saw the boys from syracuse oh my oh, gosh hey to the Aww. day <laughs> that that would have been the uh wait now is that oh it was in boston it was a production of the charles playhouse in boston oh oh great yeah, wow. yeah so so michael is this part of the uh super Di diamond platinum series for four thousand dollar tickets uh, uh -huh. and you get uh, uh truffles <laughs> <laughs> they, grown by pigs no, it's four thousand dollar tickets for a drink go on <laughs> they, they, they haven't uh quite placed this at that level but we do have a really good cast um J. Aubrey Jones, uh, mm -hmm. who, who's with us at the moment uh, mm -hmm. in the chat, I think. Uh, Christine Petty, Steve Ross, uh, Katie Dixon, Leah Horowitz, I think, is still with us. Uh, and um, Kenny Rotz and uh, Janet Finale. So uh, I'm looking forward to it and hoping that, that we're going to go through. It's it's so touch and go now for everyone. Uh Almost, it seems like almost from day to day with uh, trying to s step around the COVID minefield. Mm -hmm. So, uh, coming up, 
Uh, just in a few days, a reminder for our listeners out there, on Wednesday is the Kennedy Center Honors. So uh, I think, does that show up on the uh, the CBS? Or I'm not sure where it shows up, but somewhere on, on the small television screen or the large television screen, if you have a large one, uh, you'll be able to watch the Kennedy Center Honors. And we're going to talk about that next week for a little bit. So, uh, And I think I, I may have mentioned, I, I have known um, Justino Diaz's work for 50 years. And I also know uh, the work of Natasha Diaz uh, on stage and elsewhere in many shows. And I did not know until about three months ago that Natasha is Justino's daughter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Live and learn. Live and learn. So uh, also in the Broadway radio feed uh, out yesterday to the public, uh, a week ago it was out for our Patreon listeners, but Jan Simpson's All the Drama, they knew what they wanted. Uh, The 1925 Pulitzer Prize uh, winner for drama uh, came out in the public feed. And Matt Tamanini's uh, Tell Me More, his interview with uh, Uzo Aduba uh, on – her work in Clyde's and her other work and things like that. So lots of stuff happening in the Broadway Radio feed. So first up in our reviews, uh, Peter, you got over to uh, Lincoln Center to see Flying Over Sunset. Uh, did you drop acid before you went? <laughs> no, no. Um, uh, it never even occurred to me to do that. What can okay. I tell you? <laughs> uh, uh, I was supposed to go on Wednesday. And they said, no, you can't come because Robicell is out. And I thought, well, you know, I mean, really, um, isn't this a story about Claire Booth Luce and Cary Grant and Aldous Huxley? I mean, who's Robert Sella? Well, he does play an important part in this show because he is Gerald Hurd. Uh, Gerald was the person who introduced these people to LSD. Uh, he was a big believer in it. He was a big believer in Buddhism, um, had a very uh, crazy life, um, was married. Um, in this show, he's portrayed as gay. I can't say in that cute little book they uh, sell for a dollar um, that there's <laughs> any mention of that uh, in that article. But anyway, um, <clears throat> that turns out to be a very important part of the story. Now, one of the wonderful things about this show is it has a very clever way of telling at least some of the audience what year we're in, because um Uh, A man comes in with his child and the child is wearing a coonskin cap. Now, believe me, in the early 50s, boys were wearing coonskin caps if their mothers would let them. My mother wouldn't. You're not wearing that filthy thing. (laughs) Anyway, uh, because Davy Crockett was uh, the be all and end all. One of the great um, things that happened to baby boomers in the um, early 50s. So you immediately know that the kids were in the cap that we're talking about the early 50s. So um, I thought it was a very clever way of doing that. All right. So uh, one of the reasons that uh, people turn to LSD uh, in this show is because they've had various tragedies of various issues. Claire Booth Luce has really suffered because she's lost her mother, wonderfully played by Michelle Ragusa, uh, and her daughter, both of them in car accidents, not the same car accident, but different car accidents. Can you imagine? I mean, that really you're really in um, terrible, terrible shape when that type of thing. Huh? Um, Aldous Huxley has lost his wife um, to death, and she was somebody who was extraordinarily important to him and wonderfully supportive him and just lovely. And Cary Grant has mother issues. Um, she used to dress him as a girl, which we're told, and a wonderful wonderful young actor named Atticus Ware uh, plays him as a young boy and throughout the show must um, wear a dress, I have to say. And, um, but he does much more than that 
because one of the things that happens early in the show that gets people on the show's side is he does a dance with Tony Yazbek, who plays Cary Grant. And this is a tap dance extraordinaire. This is Gregory Hines and Sabian Glover put together. Um, both of them are extraordinary in this dance. Extraordinary. Uh, so uh, it, the applause is just thunderous. So and, and deservedly so. It, it's a, a number that goes on for quite some time. And I don't mean it goes on too long. What I mean is you, you think, well, they can't possibly have the energy to keep going and do more and more and more and more. And yet they do. So I will say. It's a very ethereal musical, very quiet musical. There are, uh, despite that tap number I just alluded to, um, it, there aren't showstoppers per se. Um, nobody's looking for that because we're on L, the characters on LSD um, for, for much of the show. And part of the thing uh, about the show is that they talk about that they do get mellow, that they do have a lot of self-examination. And also, they become brutally frank, especially in the second act. So you see the upside and downside of LSD, which is um, very fair um, because that's what happens. So uh, it almost seems to be a cautionary tale. Uh, um, don't do drugs. Um, or is it? I mean, it, that's the, the mystery of the show. The fact that you're not really sure if they're saying you got to find out about yourself. you got to find out who you are. You've got to face your fears, and this will help you do it. Or if you face your fears, you might be more fearful. So it, it's, it's strangely fair to the drug um, as they let their hair down, and the frankness comes for better or worse. You know, so uh, Tom Kiss music is quite lovely, especially the title song. By the way, the title song essentially means flying over Sunset Boulevard, because that's the way they feel when they're taking um, LSD. So that's what the title means. I don't think that many of us would assume that that's what it would be. I was surprised anyway. So um, Carmen Cusack is magnificent at portraying elegance. Um, she makes Kitty Carlisle look like a hillbilly. I mean, <laughs> such elegance, such style, such grace, such great breeding. Um, of course, you know, she does have her problems in addition to the idea of her mother and uh, daughter being killed. Um, she's not having an easy time with, with Henry, her husband, who is not sweet Henry, um, as she describes it. So, um, Robert Sella um, really has a lot more to do because, you know, again, he's not the famous one in the show. Um, his name doesn't mean anything to the general public. We've all, when we heard this project was happening, we heard about Cary Grant. We heard about Claire Booth Luce. We heard about all this because we never heard about him. Well, yes, he has uh, as much stage time as anybody else. And he has a wonderful delivery on a line about religious families. That's truly hilarious. Um, Henry Hayden Patton. Well, uh, he smartly doesn't make his upper lift too stiff. Um, he doesn't overdo the Britishness, um, but uh, and ironically, he's on the same stage where he played Henry Higgins not that long ago. So um, there's a wonderful moment Tony Asbeck has when Aldous Huxley talks about his wife and how much he misses her and how terrible it was and how devastating it is that she's not with him anymore. And what a nice line when when Tony Asbeck puts his hand on Aldous Huxley's shoulder and says, sounds like you had a beautiful marriage. 
that's nice. You know, I mean, that's the best consolation you can give. You know, what are you going to say? You, you have to say you have to appreciate what you had. Um, and you do, of course, I'm, I'm not saying he doesn't, but you have to appreciate what you had. And you have to look at it that way. When you think about your marriage, don't think about what you've lost. Think about what you've had. So I thought um, that's the best thing one can say under the circumstances. I do feel bad for Tony that um, he has the most notorious song of the decade. I know um, <laughs> the decade has started anew um, not that long ago, but uh, maybe the millennium. Um, and I'm sure you've heard about the uh, penis rocket ship song. Um, what a good soldier he is to do it because it is a very questionable piece of material. So, um, oh, by the way, the Lincoln Center audience is so different from the Broadway audience because Carmen Cusack in one song has held, holds a note for an inordinately long period of time, holds it, holds it, holds it. And not one person goes, whoa, nobody, you know, I mean, so, um, so it's a very different situation. James Lapine's work, you know, it's interesting. He did a play years ago called 12 dreams. And in a way we have 12 dreams here. So, um, so it's a variation on a theme. Um, um, which is uh, of more than moderate interest to me because 12 Dreams, I didn't see in the original production. I only caught up with it uh, when it was done at that same stage. So um, so there's a lot of um, um, synchronicity here, um, there. Now, I will admit that a line uh, about you get no second chance in life is not um, a, a line that is unknown to many of us, but I did like that at least Cary Grant said, you get no second chance in life to start the scene again um, with a, a Hollywood twist on it. Uh, and for all the talk about when they get Frank, that um, that Gerald is homosexual and they put it in far um, more graphic terms than that. They doubt his masculinity. And yet we do see that famous Emily Dickinson poem that um, we never know how high we are. Till we are called to rise. They don't say that, but it applies. And it's very interesting when you think of it, um, because what Emily Dickinson meant was we never know how tall we are till we are called to rise. But high is very interesting in the concept here. Again, again, this doesn't remotely show up in the show, but it did occur to me because um, Gerald has to come through in a very, very difficult situation. Beautiful, beautiful production. Beowulf bore it. Need I say more? Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, lighting extraordinary. Um, just a lovely, lovely um, situation. You know, well, here we are at a Christmas time, and it, it's very strange to say this, but suddenly it occurred to a lyric from a, a Christmas song occurred to me while watching this show. And that is, all is calm, all is bright. Because there is a calmness to this show that is, I will say, is not going to appeal to every musical theater fan. Um, it's hardly a razzmatazz show. Um, it's hardly a commercial show. It's not surprising it's at Lincoln Center. And I know that Andre Bishop uh, worked long and hard to make this happen over the years that um, he really believed in it and wanted it to happen and worked uh, hand in glove with James Lapine to make it happen. So it may be the most unusual musical you ever see. And because of that, I'm not surprised at the polarization where the first comment I ever read on all that chat was, I have seen the future of musical theater and this is it. And then I also saw um, many negative comments. So I won't be surprised if you love it, if you hate it. I doubt you'll be anywhere in between. 
<laughs> it's funny because the uh, the reviews for this are just at the polar extremes. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they really are. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, a voice that we don't hear very often in uh, in in the Broadway reviewing scene these days, Frank Rich took to Twitter to sing the praises of. Uh, flying over sunset, and uh, I saw uh, that. Yeah, and, and against uh, against all the other th- all <laughs> all the other reviews that were uh, very favorable and very uh, strongly against. So, flying over sunset, and uh, very tangential to this. Did you guys? Uh, uh, I don't know if any of you are really active on Twitter, but um, uh, on Twitter, somebody posted. A photograph of an audience member at Flying Over Sunset who had removed their shoes and socks to watch the uh-huh. show in the theater. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it just, uh, it's a different type of show, Flying Over Sunset. It's pulling in a different type of an audience. I'm not sure that uh, we would often see people removing their shoes and socks. Well, in, maybe in it was influenced by the show because yeah. um, they they do go barefoot <laughs> quite a bit of the time. Quite a bit. Mm-hmm. What was that? Uh, uh, was it American? Um, not American Utopia. Was it American Utopia where or David Byrne when they were uh, they did the whole show barefoot last season, two seasons ago? I never saw it. Me neither. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that is Flying Over Sunset. It is scheduled through February 6, 2022, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Jenna, Michael, and I got a chance to get over to the Jacobs to see Company. Peter talked about it last week. So, Jenna, why don't you get us started on uh, Company? What do you think? Sure. What did I think? Uh, I think this was the company I didn't know I was waiting for. <laughs> Uh, This is a new look at a classic. It's a new perspective on very old school issues. Um, And and like uh, like Peter and Michael commented on last week, I was looking through my program to see who updated the script. And I'm really disappointed that those changes aren't credited uh, because not only is it unfair to whoever did that work, I wouldn't want people thinking that there was a widely lauded Broadway musical that included gay men getting married in 1970. Uh Uh, I wish the industry had been that progressive back then. It wasn't. Um, So yeah, um, whoever made those changes didn't just turn Bobby from a straight man into a cishet woman. Uh, Whoever made those changes switched David and Jenny's lines in their scene so that uh, David is the chatterbox and uh, Jenny is more subdued. And it's a really lovely touch that I wish had been extended to other scenes to let us examine the new relationship dynamics as the old norms dissolve. And that's really what the the joy of this production is, seeing seeing a classic from a really, with new eyes, with our new perspective, you know, changing, rapidly changing values today. That's the real beauty of it. It's reflecting our new standards and holding, holding up a mirror to how, holding up a mirror to how a classic can reflect our changing values. I guess that's a uh, those are the words I'm looking for. Uh, uh-huh. Similarly, Paul and Amy have become a gay couple, Paul and Jamie. So we get to see relationships beyond that hetero model. And to that end, I read uh, Christian Lewis's article in American Theater right before I saw the show. And I really encourage everyone to take a look at that article as well. 
Uh, for those who didn't get a chance to read it, the article analyzes gender and sexuality on Broadway, and it discusses how this production misses out on some opportunities to explore some of the queer subtext that was in George Firth's script. And I agree with a lot of the points that Lewis makes, and I spent some portions of the show wishing the adaptation had taken more risks. I think some of the weaker moments in the show are because director Marion Elliott and the creative team and whoever it was who made those changes to Firth's script didn't go forward with some of the queerer elements that could add some real depth. I don't want to single out all of Lewis's points one by one, but I, I do recommend reading through the story. Um, Peter, a question for you. When you saw the original production, and I was so excited to hear that you got to see like the original, original out-of-town yeah. tryout. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Was there a scene in which Peter propositions Bobby? No, no, that or came much it? later. Okay, I thought so, because I saw the O2 Kennedy Center production, and I did not remember that moment. Mm -hmm. So, right, we can assume, I think, that uh, Firth added that scene for, what was it, the 06 revival? I don't know when that scene was added, but... Um, it was done for a London production. With oh. Adrian Lester. Right, ah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But we can assume that George Firth either wrote that or at least approved of that change. Um, I, I wish that change had been maintained in this production because it emphasizes that the issue isn't Bobby with a Y or Bobby with an IE being closeted, but that Bobby is afraid of commitment. That's the point. And Sondheim and Firth said that over and over again whenever they discussed the show. Over and over again. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> but that updated script addresses it directly. And I wish that had been kept in here because if we only see Bobby in hetero relationships, then the possibility that he or she or they is in the closet pops back up. And I don't think that's, you know, we know that's not the direction the show wants to go in. So that's a real missed opportunity there. And and I sound like I'm nitpicking and being critical. I promise I'm not. I, I, I really loved the production, but I think it could have gone a bit farther and I wish it had. Um, so Peter, in response to some comments you made last week, I can confirm women do forget the names of the men they're sleeping with. <laughs> I will point that out. I and, guess I just have a romantic view of women. What can I tell you? <laughs> I'm flattered. Um, and also, you mentioned uh, that since uh, April is now Andy, uh, you said uh, you'd pointed out that uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly how you phrased it, but you mentioned Andy should be a captain instead of a flight attendant. I can personally say I know at least one straight male flight attendant. <laughs> I have oh, met yeah, many yeah. I, I'll grant you that. But over the scheme of things, I think that um, many, many people um, think of flight at male flight attendants uh, as uh, gay. That seems to be just there were certain professions where um, people seem to think that about various professions. What can I tell you? I mean, um, hairdressers. I mean, uh, again, there are straight hairdressers, too. Um, but um, it, it, it's just a case that uh, by and large, we are looking at archetypes here. And as a result, um, I, I think it might have been uh, more interesting if you were uh, promoted. Anyway, so go on. What was interesting about that was that he was wearing captain's bars on his shoulders. You know, I thought oh. so, too. Oh, really? <laughs> he, I thought so, too. My, yeah. my wife, who works for American Airlines, said ah. he's not a flight attendant. He's wearing a captain's uniform. Why? Oh. Uh, why? It was so, so confusing that why they sent that mixed message, because flight attendants don't wear that uniform. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't mm-hmm. think See, so. I didn't. All the flights I've taken, I didn't catch that. Okay. That is okay. Okay. And, and unlike Peter, I thought the biological clock motif was front and center throughout the entire show. Uh, since this adaptation shifts the focus from a man's fear of commitment to a woman's simultaneous ticking biological clock and her fear of motherhood and commitment. Yes, but it, it just by virtue of having a woman in the role, having a woman 35 years old in the role, it really expands that. Um, I mean, the first instrumental notes of the original production are a busy signal, and the original 1970 script had Marta talking about how a busy signal is the sound of the city or the pulse of the city. How did she phrase it? Mm -hmm. Right. So for this production, the busy signal, I mean, I'm guessing half the audience doesn't even know what a busy signal is. Let me tell you, a busy signal was this thing you would hear on the phone. If someone was out, oh really? We had phones back then, um, and it's been replaced by the tick by the rhythm of a ticking clock. So it makes Bobby's dilemma about commitment and settling down so much more urgent. A Thirty-five-year-old Bobby with a Y can wait for decades to settle down and have kids if he wants to, but Bobby with an IE can't. And from the opening notes, the opening rhythm the new orchestrations and oh my god i'm blanking on the name of who did the orchestrations joel fram did the uh oh did joel do they uh it says musical supervisor i'm just checking or nope they orchestrations to a beautiful of emphasizing that and i really love that effect i love what they did with tiktok and i don't want to spoil what they do with the song tiktok but it's it's gorgeous uh i love that i loved the use of that rhythm and uh, actually, can you repeat the orchestration person? I think your your feed went out for a second there. Oh no! Oh shoot! Just for a, just for a brief second. Yes, uh, David Cullen did the orchestrations. Thanks. Of course. Thank you for that. So the cast, uh, similar, they they work beautifully together. Katrina Lank makes Bobby much less of a, uh, a cipher than other actors have done in the role, giving her some real poignancy as she stresses out about aging and missing opportunities. And she also sings one of the best being alives I think I've heard in years. Mm. I th- to me, mm. she emphasized the word survive in a very subtle but powerful way. That word just hit really hard. Beautifully done. Uh, Patty Lapone just keeps getting better at Ladies Who Lunch. As, <laughs> I mean, I thought she did a lovely job with it at the birthday concert. And what was that? Like 2000, I think. Or, was it really? I, I don't time, remember when that was. Time flies at right? speeds. Girl. Right. Wow. <laughs> and then the Philharmonic concert 10 years ago. I think she's even better at it here. Just the vitriol that drips from her as she does the song as it as the song moves on, it, it's wonderfully effective. Uh, and Peter, I completely agree with you. Matt Doyle sings one of the best getting married todays I've heard in mm. any number of years. And Elliot's staging of that scene makes it hilarious in a lot of new, unexpected ways. I mean, that song is always a showstopper, even if it's staged with everyone standing totally still. The staging of that scene is so brilliant. It's worth the price of admission alone. Fortunately, there are a lot of other things that are also worth the price of admission. Uh, Chris Fitzgerald and Nikki Renee Daniels, they're adorable as David and Jenny. <laughs> Chris Sieber, Jennifer Samard, they get lots of laughs, but also <laughs> a lot of awes as Harry and Sarah. Uh, Claiborne Elder, Bobby Conti Thornton, and Marin Orion do some great work as the three men Bobby is dating, Thornton and Elder get the show or your moments and they do some wonderful work with those scenes. 
Uh, Bunny Christie's set is really brilliant. Uh, In some (laughs) scenes, it just emerges up around Bobby while she remains still. And I love the idea of just, she's, she's stuck. She's standing still. She's not moving forward, but everything is happening around her. And I love how the set visualizes that. The use of this small box to indicate Bobby's living room crowded with company. <laughs> it just fits this. Oh, it fits it beautifully. It visually mm. creates the set. I mean, it's beautiful. Um, Neil Austin's lighting, got to give a shout out to that. It works very well to make some scenes very dreamlike. This is such a surreal look at real life. So many of the elements come together in a very effective way with this production. There, like I said, there are some places where I wish the the production had taken more risks, had examined different versions of George Firth's script to combine them together in other ways. There are moments I think it missed. No, it isn't perfect, but damn, it's close. And a lot of the moments work so beautifully together. I hope this has a very long run and a lot of people come to see it. And uh, um, Carrie Purcell had commented, there should be a production that uh, they do this. They do the two versions in rep with the same (laughs) actors in each. And people can choose which one do they want to see, the traditional Mm -hmm. or the new gender switched version. It's really, I love that idea. Uh, It's a wonderful new way of seeing the classic. All right. So, Michael, what did you think of Company? Well, as I was leaving the performance, I was walking up the aisle and ran into two fellow uh, theater critics slash journalists. And I said to them, I enjoyed this much, much more than I ever dreamed I would. Mm -hmm. And they said to to me, we were just saying the same thing. Uh, I think it's an, an interesting, very, very interesting case where the whole concept doesn't really work, but it's so entertaining <laughs> that you keep forgetting that as it's happening. Uh, I mean, arguably, uh, there, there's so much that could be said here. I uh, The original show is about how this 35-year-old male bachelor uh, mm-hmm. is uh, is keeps being uh badgered by his friends his married friends to get married and why aren't you married and you know trying to set him up with girls it's things like that and now we have the same thing happening but uh two incredibly major changes have been made to the show at at once it has been updated to the present day and the gender of Mm -hmm. Bobby has been changed to a female. I think it would have been really interesting to see if they had made only one of those changes. Mm -hmm. Um, And because I just do not think it works. And I think how's how's this for a a thought? Is it arguably offensive that all of these people uh, keep haranguing this woman to get married and uh, implying that there's something almost as if there's something lacking in her life if she doesn't do so. Thank you. Uh, yes, I'm going to jump in and interrupt <laughs> you and say uh, I, I I thought about bringing this up and I kind of now I kind of regret that I didn't. It's, it's okay. it, uh, looking back at the you know, the original 1970 script, the updated script uh, before it, before this version. Uh, I, it never occurred to me how revolutionary that must have been to have a show about a man stressing out about marriage <laughs> that, you know, you'd think about chick lit and chick flicks yes. and they always end in a wedding because 
from the dawn of European civilization, a woman's sole purpose is marriage and family. And all these stories geared towards women have to end with a wedding. It's always about marriage and family. And about not end with a marriage, maybe they end with a baby. I don't know. They always are about marrying and settling down. And I had one little moment hearing this, you know, 50-year-old text thinking, oh, great, another story about people pressuring a woman into marrying. <laughs> Can we learn what Bobby does for a living? I, I never thought this with the, uh, the original <laughs> production. I never was worrying about what does Bobby do for a living? And now I'm thinking, isn't Bobby a career woman? Can't we talk about something other than marriage and family? And then I realized this is ridiculous. This was written exactly the same for a man. But I did have that knee-jerk reaction that, oh, God, I'm so tired of people focusing on a woman's marriage. And not only was it written for a man, it was written for a man with the action taking place in 1970. Right, exactly. When there was much more pressure uh, or just societal expectation that, some, that everyone would be married. Mm-hmm. So, so does it pass, really like- the, does it pass mm-hmm. the Bechtel test? No, I I would say no. (laughs) I would say it does not. (laughs) Anyway, but regardless of all that. um, Oh, and the the anachronisms, you know, sorry, guys, there are still so many anachronisms in the in the show. If you move it to the present day, Mm -hmm. people would not react to smoking pot for the first time in the way that they do. uh, Here, uh, I don't think uh, that 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 struck a false note for me the the lyric um in the ladies who lunch uh keeping house but clutching clutching a copy of life has been changed to clutching a copy of time which is barely more acceptable because yeah. who, who you know who, who clutches a copy of any magazine anymore and uh, anyway uh and uh, uh oh the answering service Oh, line yes. ha- has finally been changed. Not until this production, I think. Uh, no, so no. I guess that was maybe one one of Sondheim's final acts. <laughs> um, so that that's interesting that he did that. And here's something that really has nothing to do with gender, but I noticed that the very odd error in getting married today has been changed. And Eliza no oh, longer yes. Eliza no longer dies on the ice, which is good because she doesn't do that in Uncle Tom's cabin. <laughs> uh, so uh, so Steve finally got around to that as well. Anyway, um, despite all of the things that that make just no sense to me anymore, uh, set in the present day and with a woman in the central role, I I. As it, as the show is proceeding, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I, it didn't hurt that this was one of the hottest audiences I have ever been in in my entire life. I went on Wednesday night, the 15th, and they were absolutely with it from the beginning, but not in an obnoxious way. I mean, all of the mm-hmm. laughs were earned. God knows every one, every laugh that Jennifer Samard Mm-hmm. Uh, earned and and she does get a laugh on every line. Mm-hmm. Uh, that woman is a genius. You She's bet. Absolutely. You bet. A comic you bet. Genius. You bet. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also I- incredibly delightfully surprised by Katrina Link. I-, I have to say, before the pandemic, I had heard nothing but negativity about her performance. I had heard that she had the wrong type of per- stage personality for the role. Uh, she was a little too inward, a little too calm, uh, not as ebullient as uh, as uh, Bobby should be. And I had also heard that vocally that it, that she was not 
well suited to the material and was really struggling. I di- I didn't think either of those things were the case in the performance I saw. I thought she had plenty of personality, uh, and um, she did do something that um, I didn't completely love. Uh, for example, in being alive, usually when when a man sings that or when I've heard it sung in the past, uh, the first verse, the first time through is kind of choppy and uh, with the next uh, accent on the acting rather than the singing. And then the second time through is more sung full out. Um, she didn't do that so much that I would say the second time through, she she was still kind of chopping up the phrases. And I, I would have enjoyed hearing uh, more of a full, full out vocal sound. But um, I think she might have been doing it on purpose because she saved the uh, big vocal guns till the very ending, the very ending of the song. And when she sang the final being alive, it was really, really belted out there. And it was you got the feeling like she's finally made her breakthrough here. Um, so I I was, as I say, delightfully, delightfully surprised about her um, to Jenna's point about the uh, not exploring the the sexuality issue more. Uh, I, I, you didn't mention it, Jenna, but I'm sure you're also thinking of the fact that uh, a tremendous missed opportunity in the scene after the ladies who lunch, mm-hmm. because in the original show, I didn't want to spoil it, but yeah. yeah. Well, okay. All right. So uh, there's about to be a spoiler uh, in the original show, uh, which I guess is not a spoiler. <laughs> um, <laughs> 50 years now. Bobby and uh, Joanne are hanging out in this club and Larry, uh, her husband has gone to uh, off to pay the check and it's the two of them. And Bobby is babbling on and it, and, and finally out of the blue, Joanne turns to Bobby and says, when are we going to make it? And then she propositions him. And this is supposed to be kind of a catalyst for Bobby to tell himself, ask himself, what is going on with me and what, what, do I want? What do I need? What am I going to do? Um, and then after that, uh, interestingly, in the original script and in the current script, uh, uh, Joanne says, I think I just did someone a big favor, which I have always loved that line because that makes you think, well, maybe she didn't really mm-hmm. want to sleep with him and didn't expect him to, but she just did it to shock him into uh, you know, a realization of that he's got to kind of figure out what's going on. So here, what does she say? She says, when are you going to make it with my husband? And it would have been so great if she just, if Joanne just propositioned the female Bobby uh, and that, cause that would have been a big shocker mm-hmm. at the end of the evening. And that would have, uh, I, I think been really great. I wonder if, I wonder if uh, Patty Lapone balked at doing that because uh, she has been involved with the show since the London production, or if Marianne Elliott didn't feel that she wanted to go there. Uh, it would be interesting to find that out to maybe ask them that question at some point, although I don't know if they'd want to talk about it. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's so that's what I thought about that. And I had tremendously mixed feelings about the whole concept of the show, as I thought I would even while enjoying it immensely as it was happening. So uh, 
I have to reinforce uh, a number of things that uh, everybody has set up to now uh, from Jenna's point about the design. I loved the updated uh, use, the use of the iPhones and the selfies and the shadow box that the, that the stage, uh, they, mm. they put a, a white border, a white lit border around the edges, and it looked like an Instagram type of uh, mm. frame. That and uh, it it really it made funny pictures. I think it, the conceptually, from uh, a directorial and a design standpoint, they 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 hit the ball out of the park. They did very very good. I, I loved all of that. Um, uh, what uh, uh, Peter had said last week about uh, Katrina Link uh, that. When when she smiles, she, she lights the entire theater up. Hmm. She she just uh, and it's so funny because uh, because again uh, I I went into this thinking uh, similar to Michael. I'm not sure I, I, this is a great concept uh, to switch the gender roles and and things like that. For, and but it won me over. I, I loved it. And I think that uh, Katrina Link has got this this thing, this it that uh, that's indescribable. That it's sort of like when Alan Cumming is on a stage, you can't take your eyes off of Alan Cumming, and when mm-hmm. Katrina Link is on the stage, you can't take your eyes off of Katrina Link, no matter what she's doing. And uh, well, and, how wonderful if she really, you know, if she didn't have it in the beginning and really, really worked on it, wouldn't that be an incredible credit to her? If uh, if she really took if it took her a while to find the character and then she really worked her butt off and then got it, uh, maybe that's what happened. I it's just really wonderful, and uh, I also liked her in the band's visit, um, uh, sure. and I felt like she had that that quality as well that you couldn't take your eyes off of her. But but to Michael's point is that I really felt like she nailed the Bobby character mm-hmm. and that truly, uh, just like Michael said, uh, you know, before the pandemic, it was kind of not like not w- whispers on the street was like, Oh, this is, this is going to be a train wreck. Yeah. And this is anything, but this yes. is Agreed. just yes. really, really wonderful. Uh, but it, it comes to the issue. How, how do you replace a Katrina link? If the, if the show continues to run past when she departs the show, how do you replace that? And that's uh, not our problem. That's the problem for the producer. <laughs> problem for the producers. And may may they have that problem, and hopefully, a company mm-hmm. will continue to run. What a strong cast, as everybody has said. I mm. mean, uh, I mean, fr- from Claybill and Elder to Jennifer Samard to, of course, Patty. Uh, I, I, you know, they're they're. This is the best of the best uh, up on the stage there at the Jacobs, and uh, and what else can you say about it? So, a very strong recommendation from me to uh, to get to company if you can and see it live. So uh, next up, um, Peter and Jenna are going to uh, talk about the West Side Story movie. Michael and I have talked about it in the past, but so uh, Peter, what did you think of this of this movie? Um, I think it wipes the floor with the original, and um, I think it's eight eight hundred and four times better than the original, uh, right from the very outset. 
when the first shot you see is looks like is a dystopian future movie. Uh, the, the whole um, streets are being dug up, uh, shards of the set and everything, uh, burned out buildings, it seemed to be, but they're being torn down. So uh, right from the start, whoa, it looks like it's going to be tough stuff. Uh, the guys have tattoos, which I don't believe the original Justin Sharks did. I can't remember um, that happening. I love the fact that um, a guy was having sex in uh, one of those cranes uh, the <laughs> yeah, yeah. tear down thing, um, you know, but he leaves the girl to be part of uh, the gang. You know, even a girl can't stop a gang um, from uh, continuing. So um, we often hear that um, when a character in a musical uh, cannot contain his feelings, he uh, sings. Well, you know, it never even occurred to me that that's true of dance too, isn't it? Um, and so, the fact that they uh, segue into dance, which I thought was very well handled in the original by Jerome Robbins is, is very well handled here too. So, um, but the jets are really tougher here. They even terrorize an older man um, as they walk through the streets. I and mean, we never saw them do that. It was just, mm. you know, they were up against each other. So, um, so, uh, and boy, the brawl that we see is far more contentious and far more violent than the one we saw in the 61 movie. And therefore, um, far more realistic. Even when the cops come there, these guys are getting in their last licks, which I thought was um, of more than moderate interest. Um, it speaks to our times because there's all that stuff about being born here, giving a sense of entitlement. Well, Lord knows um, with all the immigration issues we have, uh, that certainly um, makes sense. Um, a nail in the ear. Whoa. I mean, that's mm. tough stuff. You know what I mean? Really? So, um, so I thought that that was uh, impressive too. Nice dialogue from Tony Kushner all the way through. Uh, you are the last of the can't make it Caucasians, uh, Shrank says. <laughs> There's even a riff on the word Shrank, which I thought was clever. You can really tell that Tony Kushner watched this movie endlessly and <laughs> kept on asking himself questions, you know. So um, I like Riff's uh, side of the mouth delivery. I thought he was very effective in, uh, in, in doing that. Um, he doesn't have a... Uh, what you think of as um, a tough voice. Um, it's almost a little squeaky, but the point is um, he doesn't see himself that way. And that's what's important. So um, I like the way they saved Rita Moreno's entrance. Uh, they teased us before getting to her. So I like the fact that she knew them as kids. What a smart mm -hmm. idea. Of course she did. Of course they came in there to get candy when they were little boys and to see them morph into what they become, uh, what they've become is, is really very something we've never thought about. We never thought about that one. Uh, well, uh, I can't speak for everyone, of course, but I'll, I have a feeling that most of us didn't ask that question about um, when they used to go into Doc's store in the 61 movie. So, mm -hmm. um, so I think that's a very, very smart uh, thing. Um, Something's coming. The fact that he sings it to uh, Rita Moreno is, um, is is good. And the shiny floor that he sees himself in. I, again, details, you know, really, really mm -hmm. good. The ladder that moves, um, those ladders that they have in those stores that move from one place to another. Using that in the musical number, I thought was um, very good, too. When I first saw the poster in the apartment of Bernardo um, as the boxer, there's a poster. I thought, why did they choose a poster with Bernardo on it. When uh, we have a Bernardo, I, it never occurred to me that he would be the boxer. And that does lead to a flaw in the movie for me. And that is the fact that when he and Tony are fighting and they do fight with fists, 
I can't imagine that Tony can even remotely hold his own against a professional boxer. Um, so I thought that was uh, a bit, but, um, but it's nice to give him an occupation, so to speak. And it's often been said <clears throat> in olden days, minorities could only get ahead through sports or show business. And so this makes sense to me that this would, um, would happen. Um, I love the fact that so much more has been made of Chino. We find out that he has ambition. We find out he's going to night school. That makes the tragedy greater. We didn't know who he was in the original picture. And yet he wants to be a shark. You know, that's important, you know, to be masculine and all that. And the fact that he tells Bernardo, you have been so good to me. Essentially, you've been my mentor, you know, all that kind of stuff makes him more uh, willing to shoot Tony. It's, it's not just because of Maria, it's because of Bernardo, too. So he has double the motivation. So I think that's um, really very um, smart, too. And wasn't I, it wonderful, Peter, that moment uh, in the dance at the gym when um, at first uh, Chino is very, very uncomfortable. Exactly, yes. And then mm -hmm. he suddenly uh, he rips off his jacket and starts dancing. And Maria is is delighted and she jumps in and starts dancing with him and you think for a moment that they might have they might have been a couple it's exactly and then she, my and take on it yeah. and she sees yeah. tony Exactly. The fact that she's giving him a chance that, you know, who knows, maybe this will work out. You know, I mean, uh, right. yeah, yeah, I, I underestimated him. I thought that was really good. I um, I don't know why um, all the Jets girls were dressed in blue um, uh, during that dance. Um, almost all of them had completely blue outfits. There was one that had a brown skirt, but um, I wasn't sure. Well, did that mean they had a lack of imagination? This is what everybody's wearing this year. Um, <laughs> it might very well be that, you know, I wish that um, Gladhand had been a different type of uh, guy. You know, the idea of putting him in glasses and, of course, the bow tie, the um, universal symbol for nerd um, is is a problem. For me. I would like to see a real tough guy be that, in that position. I think they, they would want to get a tough guy in that position. Not that. Um, uh, the original guy, John Aston, was um, so butch and he was uh, directed to be silly, too. But yeah. I think it might be a good idea to have um, a tough guy in that role. But um, smart to have the cops there. I don't recall there being there in the 61 movie at the dance at the gym. Very smart. They knew what troubles lurking, you know, so um, I noticed, too, by the way, I thought it was so interesting that there were banners on the uh, walls of the gym um, talking about the football team's achievements, all the sports teams. Achievements. <laughs> it was all class C. Class C, even that, you know, the fact that we, we were um, reminded that this is um, um, a minor league situation that, um, that they don't even um, get the chance to uh, to play in the big league, so to speak, you know, so. Um, so that was, you know, I, I've often, I remember the first time I ever saw this movie um, and um, in the. Um, the dance uh, when Tony and Maria connect for the first time and the song Maria is played um, and there are two finger snaps and then one finger snap. Um, I've, I've always found interesting that they're really on the same page. That's because you would expect that at least one of them would do two finger snaps since they did two finger snaps the first time. But no, that's um, that's the way that we really see that they're um, on the same page. So mm. um, so I like that quite a bit. Um, and um well, uh, I, I the art direction and set decoration. Good Lord. I mean, um, uh, one of the things that really impressed me, there was a scene on the street and um, a car drives by and parked on each side of the street are other cars. But the car that drives by is a newer model. 
Now, 1955 was the year when cars changed. They used to be short and squat. 1955, they became much um, shorter, so to speak, and leaner and longer. Uh, Tail fins were coming in, all that kind of stuff. And I thought it was so smart to show us on that street, excuse me, um, on that street to see um, old cars um, contrasted with a new car to show us that this is a poor neighborhood. These people aren't getting a new car every year. Mm. They're, they're stuck with the old cars. And the fact is that that's another way of alienating you know, the, the, to showing that you're poor, that you have uh, not the snazziest up to date car. So I thought that was uh, astonishingly effective. Um, the Kleenex box, the candy um, wrappers were of that era. Um, so <laughs> a lot of attention paid to that, which I thought was um, <clears throat> really good. Uh, very much indeed. Um and um, I love the fact that in the um, uh, when he's trying to reach her <clears throat> on the fire escape, it isn't easy uh, that there's the great between them. Mm. Uh, and yet he finds a way to, around it. But for a while there, it looks like he, they're not going to come together, that they're going to be separated by a gate. And of course, what we are talking about is uh, the fact that they'll be separated quite a bit during this um, uh, production. So I thought it was very smart to have Bernardo and Anita arrive home just before Tony and Maria have their um, balcony scene. That's uh, that makes the sense of danger greater. We only in the 61 her movie heard Maria from uh, the parents, Mm. you know, but here, you know, and the fact that she's living with Bernardo and they're not married is uh, pretty hot stuff too. So, um, so I like that quite a bit. Um, And um, well, uh, I, I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't expect, you know, that um, at first I thought Anita was spending the night and then I found out she was living there, which, um, again, uh, upped it quite a bit. So um, um, if there were an Oscar for best laundry, I guess this would win because <laughs> there are so many scenes where we see the laundry hanging out online, stretching from one <laughs> building to another. And that's effective, too, because. There's no privacy. You see underwear, you see panties, you know, all that kind of stuff. People have to really, um, you know, we, we hear the expression, show your dirty laundry. Well, even showing your clean laundry is so much degrading. <laughs> so so I thought that was um, and there's a marvelous moment in America where um, they pull the laundry and um, you, uh, you see, a, I guess it's a T-shirt, but then they pull the laundry and you see a woman uh, in a window singing America. When I saw the um, rushes early on of the scene of America um, where they're dancing in the street, I thought, but, well, wait a minute. You know, I mean, um, you know, it was much better on the roof because, I mean, dancing on the street, how can they just take over a street? But that's that's really taken care of because, indeed, you see cars stopped. You p- see people getting out of their cars, their arms akimbo saying, when the hell is this going to end? You know, so I thought that was good. I like the fact that we saw a sign saying um, that a, a building was going to open in May of 58. So that grounds us. We know it's before 1958. Uh, very nice to have that, um, too. So. Uh, um, and did you notice the signs that said 68th Street and Broadway? Yes, I sure did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought it was great that when they get on the subway to go up to the cloisters, that indeed they have a very serious conversation. Yeah. Tony and Maria are somewhat naive in the original uh, movie um, and the original production, for that matter. They don't have that conversation. They um, I mean, even though they both of them sense danger, not as much as here where they start confronting their problems on the subway. They have a very serious conversation about what might um, happen to them. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really, really good. 
Um, I'm glad Officer Krupke is where it is. That's a very controversial thing. People think cool should be there where it originally was. But I'll tell you, I don't I, it's, I'm embarrassed that I never thought of it, but I don't understand why nobody else has ever thought of it. When cool was in that um, original place. Um, wow. Why not get Tony telling the guys to get cool? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, as, as opposed to riff, Tony's the one who wants everybody to be cool. You know, so it makes more sense for that. So I thought that was a brilliant touch, just brilliant. Um, so I like that quite a bit. Um, so um, I found also interesting that the most profane word in the picture was spoken by a, a woman, the Graciela character, when she says, God damn, late in the show. I've often had issues. I've, I've mentioned this over the years about West Side Story having toothless lyrics. Um, you know, spit hits the fan. That's not what these guys would say, you know, and one scene in both the movie and the original property has action saying, where the devil are they? Oh, please. You know, that's Henry Higgins. Where the devil. It's not it's not a jet. They'd say, where the hell are or worse? You know, as we uh, well, um, nice to have them at the cloisters for uh, one hand, one heart. The, the place um, that um, is so serene. Uh, nothing wrong with the bridal shop. I just thought this was. Um, um, a very effective uh, change. Um, Riff says, born to die young. Little does he know how mm-hmm. accurate he is. And yet there's a part of him that doesn't believe that either because he's this tough guy, you know. So uh, so that's not going to um, happen. So, um, um, well, you know, um, <laughs> I'm glad we had the original lyrics um, from uh, Anita in the quintet. Uh, he'll walk yes. in hot and tired. So what? Don't matter if he's tired as long as he's hot. It's a shame that that had to be changed to poor dear as long as he's here, because the wonderful thing about hot is has two meanings. When she says um, uh, he'll walk in hot and tired, she means sweaty. But don't matter as long as he's hot means, of course, sexually charged. So um, it's a shame that that was lost in the 61 movie. And I'm very mm-hmm. glad. I'm glad the cops were preparing for the rubble. They weren't just stooges um, who showed up later, as they do in the um, original picture. They, they know what's going on. And, and it's nice when people are smarter. So that's um, that's a, a very good thing. I really like that. Um, and isn't something when um, the great comes down and with their meeting, the, those steel grates that come down um, when stores are closed um, and Tony has to get in and Chino has to get in and they both work together yes. to lift the grate. Mm-hmm. Oh. And the thing is, little do they know that uh, Tony has no idea he's facing his murderer and Chino has no idea he's facing the man he's going to kill. So there they are working together. A lot is always made of the fact that the Jets and the Sharks pick up the body at the end of the um, uh, show. I don't think this is a spoiler but anyway um but Wait, what body <laughs> right so uh anybody's anybody dies? dies oh no <laughs> so um th- to see them work together there um is just so poignant for those of us um who knows uh, who know what's going on so um so uh, uh smart repositioning of um, i feel pretty nice to go back to where we have the dramatic irony that uh we know that um, Bernardo's killed. She doesn't. She's happy go lucky. Uh, here we are. Nice to have him among cleaning women. Um, it's a, a whole new set of people. Notice that many of the cleaning women are old, indicating that when you are a cleaning woman when you're young, you become a cleaning woman when you're old, because what else is going to happen to you? I thought that was really very good. And the idealized situation of the department store where they have pretty displays, which has nothing to do with their real lives. <laughs> um, I thought that was really very mm-hmm. effective as well, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, 
Um, the fact that Anita goes into the morgue to identify the body. Oh, my yes. God. I mean, oh. and what's so interesting is the first body she sees. Right. Is not Bernardo. And um, I believe it's Riff. Yes. And um, and the thing is, that gives her a glimmer of hope that the next one she sees isn't going to be Bernardo either. But of course, that isn't what's going to happen. Um, I love the fact that we saw the tough guys um, on the street scurry like rats when the police arrived. You know, again, for all their toughness, they're scared of the law. They know what can uh, happen. You know, so um, uh, Rita Moreno singing somewhere is almost like an anthem of hope for all Puerto Ricans, all immigrants, I, I thought was um, a very um, effective. And I was very glad to see Anita slap Maria um, before a boy like that, um, more complete one than in the 61 movie um, when they sing together, um, each of their uh, like a quad libet. Uh, so I thought that was good. Mm. Um, so um, and we never found out in the original movie where Chino gets this gun. But a lot is made of that in this picture. A mm. lot is made of that in this mm. picture. They give us exactly all the reasons why that would happen. So um, so I thought that was um, really good. Um, the fact that Maria uses um, her period as an, uh, as an excuse at one point is a very smart thing. You would never heard the word period um, aside from meaning something at the end of a sentence uh, in 1961. But now we can. So um, so that was good, too. And. Um, and again, you know, I, the famous statement uh, made about West Side Story way back when was the fact that they were going to have Maria kill herself at the end, just as Juliet in Romeo and Juliet kills herself. Not that William Shakespeare has ever gotten any credit on any poster or record album. This is what it's based <laughs> on. You know, there may be a lawsuit. Anyway, the thing is that um, Richard Rogers, I'm told, was the one who said, um, don't have her kill herself. She's already dead. Well, it, in, in this version, it occurred to me when Anita says, to the uh, to the Jets, um, uh, Maria's dead. Um, well, that's a foreshadowing of that uh, famous Richard Rogers statement. Mm. So, mm. so anyway, um, I, I I let this be a lesson to all of us. I will never forget when this project was announced. Right um, on all that <laughs> chat, everybody was talking about why ruin a masterpiece and what are they going to do and isn't this crazy? <laughs> we don't need it. And, also, and I think, uh, what can I say? I think it's such a tremendous improvement, and I wouldn't have thought in a million years I would feel this way. Never underestimate. Mate Steven Spielberg or Tony Kushner. <laughs> never, never. <laughs> I have spoken. <laughs> Peter, I want to thank you for bringing up my post on all that chat. Uh, so, that's good. I'm glad to see that you're reading the stuff that I write. Good. Uh, so, Jenna, what's your thoughts about uh, West Side Story, the movie? Uh, I completely agree with Peter on uh, most, pretty much everything he just said. Uh, I'm I did not know I could cry so hard at a 60-year-old script. It's not like we don't know where it's going. And Spielberg, you're right. I mean, don't underestimate Spielberg. This new adaptation is if not more effective than 61. I mean, uh, is it more effective than 57? I, I would love to yeah, know. I um, there either. <laughs> yeah. Um, God, can you imagine if someone had a slime tutorial of 1957 opening night? I'm mm -hmm. dreaming. Mm -hmm. Any case. Um, Spielberg worked with Tony Kushner, you know, Pulitzer winner Tony Kushner, to update Arthur Lawrence's script. And 
my one criticism, I do wish, in addition to Kushner, Spielberg had brought in, let's say, Lin-Manuel Miranda to adapt the screenplay, keep the creative team from being entirely white. Uh, I really appreciate that the creative team had consultants from Puerto Rico to be respectful, to try to be accurate and authentic. I don't know how much they were involved. How many meetings did they have? How involved were they in the rewriting? And they will not be up for any awards for their work, whereas Kushner and Spielberg will be. Mm. Uh, If the creative team really wanted to emphasize diversity, I wish they had more people of color with their names above the title. Um, So uh, one bit of criticism there. Uh, Something Peter didn't mention, I loved the use of untranslated Spanish throughout the show. Yeah, that's a very good point. Mm -hmm. I loved that, you know, they emphasize, yes, these characters are speaking English when they're speaking English. It's not that they're speaking Spanish, but we hear it in English. And the idea that there are no subtitles, that if you don't speak Spanish, you're not going to know what they say. I can imagine that's what a lot of non-Spanish speakers feel like when uh, sorry, non-English speakers right. feel like when they arrive uh, here. Um, it lets the non-Spanish speakers feel like outsiders for a moment. And if that makes you uncomfortable, just imagine how uncomfortable the people who don't speak English feel. So I thought that was a very effective, nice little uh, little gesture. Um, I loved how Kushner's script fleshes out the characters. We I love the backstories that we get so that they're more rounded, so that the tragedy hits harder, just like Peter said. Um, you know, we see the futures that they have ahead of them. And so when we, those futures are lost, it's so much more powerful. Bernardo being a boxer, Chino being a repairman, the, the violence destroys those futures, and it's that much more effective. Um, And Peter, like you said, the use of demolished buildings as a backdrop, the sense of ruin, literally from the opening shot, we're seeing destruction. And that theme is carried all throughout the show. Uh, It turns the disappearing San Juan Hill and Lincoln Square neighborhoods into characters in their own right. I was reminded of when I was a kid and I saw the third man. And how Orson Welles used a bombed out Vienna as a character. Mm. All the destruction that Harry Lyme is causing in The Third Man is reflected in the destruction from the bombing of World War II. And oh, Spielberg did a beautiful job incorporating that. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to Justin Peck's choreography, which pays a lot of homage to Jerome Robbins' original work in some very nice ways. But it's also new, it's eye-catching, it's original, and it does some beautiful work with, uh, you know, well, riffing on the original, pun fully intended, but still managing to be very effective and new. And also, I'm going to mispronounce this name, my apologies, Janusz Kaminski's uh, cinematography is great. It let us see, lets us see whole bodies when they dance. It drives me nuts <laughs> when there's a dance going on and we only see the smiling face and were they kicking there? Were they moving their arms? Who knows? Because the camera's stuck on their faces. We get the full bodies. We can see the athleticism of the choreography and how they're dancing. It incorporates, like Peter mentioned, it incorporates the streetscape into the choreography. There's this great shot uh, with you know the camera moving up the street into the intersection where the shark girls are dancing America. And we see the people standing along the sidewalks and the blocked up traffic. So this whole moment, it's complete because we see what's going on around them and what they're dancing in reaction to. It's a beautiful little shot. And there's a shot in the quintet 
uh, that made me gasp out loud. And I don't want to spoil what it was, but I think you'll you'll recognize it when you see it. Mm. Um, just a beautiful bit of moment of staging and cinematography that's wonderful. Uh, I wanted to shout out the casting. Um, Rachel Zegler, what the hell? She makes her professional acting debut <laughs> in a Steven Spielberg movie. She already has a Golden Globe nomination for her work. I mean, uh, and she earns every bit of it. Uh, um, you know, sidebar to point out, you know, as much as I love Arthur Lawrence's original script, I, it's very problematic in a lot of ways. And I think this adaptation helps uh, ameliorate some of those problems. Uh, but one of the problems was that Tony and Maria are really not compelling characters in the original script. Anita and Bernardo are so much more interesting and compelling. Uh, Kushner gives them a lot more personality and character. It makes their journeys that much more effective. So I really love what Rachel Zegler and Ansel Elgort do. Elgort apparently is very problematic as a person. I'll begrudgingly say his Tony is effective. I think better than 61. I hate to say it. I mean, but still West Side Story belongs to Anita and Bernardo. Ariana DeBose and David Alvarez have some fantastic chemistry in those roles. Just breathtaking work. Hand them the awards already. I mean, uh, Alvarez already has his Tony. Uh, hopefully this gets him closer to an EGOT. That would be very nice. Uh, DeBose is jaw-droppingly good. Uh, from the joy of America, she's leaping around on the streets. And apparently this, <laughs> the day when they filmed that was so hot she had holes in her shoes from dancing on the street. Uh, the street literally burned holes into her shoes. It's thrilling to watch her dancing. And then to see her, the grief on her face during a boy like that, the rage behind it is heartbreaking. I mean, she goes mm. from these extremes so beautifully. And it's you know, another sidebar to mention, Romeo and Juliet takes place over what, five days? West Side Story takes place over 24 hours. Mm. That's it. It condenses everything into 24 hours. And for her to go in literally one day from the joy of America and that up-tempo, bright number to the grief, the rage of a boy like that is, is incredibly powerful. And another big shout out to uh, Iris Menas. I'm not sure. Iris, Iris, I'm not, Iris, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name as anybody's. And you know, big cheers to Kushner for explicitly making the character trans. He does some beautiful work in the role and again, makes the character who's kind of a throwaway in the original uh, really, there's more of a journey there that I kind of wish had been expanded upon because it's that compelling. That journey is just beautifully done and it makes uh, the final, uh, what sort of, what's the, uh, the final conversation walking out of the candy store it hits so much harder that's such a beautiful moment uh, and big cheers to Menace for making the character really compelling uh, anybody's in the original is cute and fun but doesn't really do all that much it's not much of a journey there it's much more of a journey here and very compelling to follow it's like Peter said it is a beautiful beautiful film I was shocked I mean when I first heard a new West Side Story, I thought, talk about gilding the lily. And I was wrong. I was very, very wrong. Uh, I've never been so glad to be so wrong. And this is a wonderful production. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that uh, the new wave of the pandemic is keeping people out of theaters because 
This is one I would happily buy to download and watch over and over again. It's just, it's that good. And I, I hope it proves successful enough that there are more like it. So uh, that is West Side Story. And uh, as we talked about last week, the box office hasn't been great for it, but hopefully it'll uh, pick up. A lot of people have said that they're uh, waiting for the holiday season to kick in when they have less things to do. Uh, and maybe get over to their local movie theater to see West Side Story. And uh, let's hope that everybody does. So uh, last two things on the on the agenda for this morning are that Michael got to the uh, New York Pops holiday concert over at Carnegie Hall with, uh, with an, as some understudy was on, right, Mike? Yeah, uh, some unknown named Kelly O'Hara. Okay. Uh, just very nicely subbing for Laura Benanti, who apparently uh, felt she needed to absent herself because there was a COVID exposure in her family, I believe is the way it was, it was phrased. Um, so, you know, it's nice to have friends like Kelly O'Hara, <laughs> um, <laughs> who is not only a good friend of Laura, but also of the New York Pops, having performed with them before. And uh, of course, she was magnificent um, singing a wonderful holiday songs that we know and love uh, and with that great orchestra. And uh, she did uh, the end, the, the end of the program basically was a, a spectacular arrangement of Oh Holy Night. Uh, very, very grand, where she kept climbing higher and higher and sang this mind boggling high note at the end. <laughs> as, as we were leaving, I turned to my friend and said, that was a C, wasn't it? And he said, that was a C. <laughs> uh, so uh, I see. Uh, so she was just great. And, and it was wonderful to be there in Carnegie Hall uh, in the midst of lots of other shows being canceled. I, I really was privileged to be there. And, and it just really did my heart good to get some Christmas cheer at this difficult time. And who better to bring it than Kelly O'Hara and the New York Pops? All right. And uh, then finally this morning, Peter, you got down to the uh, Museum of Jewish Heritage to see Becoming Dr. Ruth with uh, our, our old friend Tova. Um, I remember Tova once saying to me that some uh, people uh, get their characters from the walk, uh, the size, what have you. She always does it from the voice. And my, does she have Dr. Ruth's voice down pat? <laughs> I mean, she, if you close your eyes, you would swear that you're listening to Dr. Ruth. Um, uh, those little trilly things that she does. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it perfectly timed, wonderfully done. So uh, this is Mark St. Germain's script about um, Dr. Ruth looking back in her life. She's going to be moving from her apartment. She's downsizing um, and she goes through many of her uh, possessions and tells stories about them. Uh, we also see projections on the back wall. Um, and it's it's quite quite a, a thing. I, I I was glad to see it again. I saw it way back in 2013 with Deborah Jo Rupp, I believe, and um, she was very very good. But I do believe that um, Toba Felcher, who uh, is such a marvelous marvelous uh, performer and a game performer as well, um, she always uh, told the story about when she was just starting out and she was in the musical Cyrano, the one with Cyrano. 
uh, with Christopher Plummer, um, that a new director came in. She said, oh, now I'm in trouble because after all, I was cast by the old director. This guy may not like me. What's going to happen? And he came in and said, can anybody do a cartwheel? And she did a cartwheel. And he said, yeah, good. And she knew that was what uh, had her uh, keep her job. And, <laughs> and when I mentioned that uh, emceeing the Theater World Awards once, uh, she came on to the cartwheel. My God, I'll never do it again. I don't know if she can still do it. And I don't want her to break <laughs> a leg while she's coming on to present. I mean, you know, so but anyway, so Tova is an amazing, amazing woman. And um, I knew that way back in 1976 when I saw her do Yentl. Oh, what a performance is Yentl. I'm sorry that when um, they made that movie with Mandy Patinkin, that they didn't um, ask her to repeat her role because uh, she would have been awfully good because um, she was just magnificent. But but they didn't. So anyway, so while you didn't see um, her in the movie of Yentl and maybe you didn't see her in Yentl at all, here's a chance to see her as Dr. Ruth. And she's really quite spectacular. All right. Uh, I want to throw in here that Matt Timonini uh, interviewed Tova uh, on Broadway Radio. Um, uh, about her experience in becoming Dr. Ruth. It was in the, uh, it was about a week or so ago. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So before we wrap up for today, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play. Anywhere that you listen to find a podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. For a transcript of this episode or any Broadway Radio's uh, uh, episodes, uh, please email transcripts at broadwayradio.com and include the episode name. We'll send you out a transcript of uh, of the episodes. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, for Jennifer, me can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? Yes, from 1906 through 1987, a name could be found in the cast list of playbills in every one of those nine decades. It could be found as few as twice in the 60s, but as many as 37 times in the 20s. What is the name? Well, the answer is George Spelvin. Although there is no George Spelvin, it's the fictitious name that actors default to when they don't want to be identified. J. Aubrey Jones, soon to be seen in Michael Potanti as the boys from Syracuse, <laughs> was the one and only person to get it. Not Tony Janicki, not Paul Witte, not Brigadoon. J. Aubrey Jones and J. Aubrey Jones alone. Maybe we should call him the Emperor Jones. Anyway, what do these songs have in common? That's the question for this week. Things could be better from the full Monty. What do I do now from Mame? I would trust her from the pajama game. And why can't a woman be more like a man from My Fair Lady? Okay. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. All right, so on behalf of Michael Portantier, Peter Felicia, Jenna Tessa Fox, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We'll give you sorrow. You'll meet another boy tomorrow. One of your own kind. Stick to your own guy. A boy who kills cannot laugh. A boy who kills has no heart. And he's the boy who gets your love. Like that, was one thing only, and when he's done, he'll leave you lonely. He murdered your love, he murdered mine. 
Just wait and see. Just wait, Maria. Just wait and see. for me, it's true for you, and not for me, I hear your words, and in my head, I know they're smart, but my heart, but my heart, no see you, your brother, and my heart, forget that boy, and find another, one of your own kind, to do your own kind, to him alone, to him alone, one thing I know, and why you I'll never be safe here. See, oh, say. And no one will ever forgive him. With you, 
can't ever ask me that. Will you forgive me? Te quiero, mi niña. Or he will have to go away. And you will have to go with him.